This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Dr. Hansen is the Director of Clinical Programs at UC Davis Mind Institute and Professor-in-Chief of Developmental Behavioral Pediatrics, Department of Pediatrics, and Director of the Center for Excellence in Developmental Disabilities at UC Davis Health Systems, and a good friend. (laughs) Now, where's my clicker? Here? And this is your pointer. Oh, I forgot to say what you're going to talk about. That's okay. I can, my slide's up. It's right there. So it is nice to be back, and I realized as I was thinking about my updates that I will be sort of updating you on some of the research that's evolved since the last time I was here presenting on autism research updates. Um, So I have nothing to disclose, financial disclosures. I do have to disclose that the day after I sent my slides in for the syllabus, we had a new um, study that came out online, so I'm going to talk about it. So this this is not in your syllabus. Um, I think those of us who treat patients with autism and certainly those of us doing research in autism spectrum disorders understand how complicated they are and how heterogeneous they are in terms of presentation, certainly in terms of etiology, and increasing in prevalence. Our research has really tried to understand what are some of these etiologies. Can we identify biomarkers? Can we find endophenotypes or subtypes of autism that help us in understanding potential targeted treatments so that we um, can do a better job in not only early diagnosis, but early treatment as well. So as I said, I'm going to try and highlight some translational research that's been ongoing at the Mind Institute, I realize, for about 20 years, and some of the most recent research that we have that primarily relates to looking at gene-environment interactions as well as taking us along this path to look at immune dysregulation as a risk factor in autism. So uh, the learning objectives are, one, to understand the current prevalence estimates of autism in the United States, to understand or identify four um, maternal metabolic conditions that we think increase the risk for autism as well as more generalized developmental delays, to understand or list the clinical characteristics of a subtype of autism called maternal autoantibody-related autism, or MAR autism, and to list some of the core and comorbid symptoms associated with some different immune endophenotypes in the children themselves. So we are fortunate in the United States to have um, the CDC doing ongoing prevalence studies across the country at various sites. And each time that they report out, which is about every two years, the prevalence of autism has increased and We don't know how much longer it's going to keep increasing, but right now it's currently 1 in 59 or 1.7% of children. This work is done where they evaluate multiple records at 8 years of age. Um, So it's up from the last time they reported it, which was 1 in 68. And one thing I think is significant is that less than half of these children looking back were diagnosed um, by age 4 although most of their parents had concerns way before this. I think it really pushes us to try and figure out ways to do earlier diagnosis so we can really get earlier treatment. 
This is a schematic just to sort of start the story of the research that we've been doing. And I, um, I'm not quite sure how to use, oh, use my pointer, but it all started with a study that was funded by uh, NIEHS and the EPA called the CHARGE study. And this was really as we were beginning to try and figure out, you know, why would a highly heritable, at least genetically based disorder be increasing so rapidly. There's got to be something else that's changing because genetic disorders don't change that fast. So can we try and figure out by looking at multiple, multiple, uh, in a population-based case-controlled study, can we look at you know, sort of the shotgun approach? We really weren't particularly focused on looking at immune dysregulation, but it was one of the things that we figured we should be looking at and things in the environment that we knew were changing, many of which um, are potentially very neurotoxic. Um, something that came out of that, so this was a primarily a retrospective study. Um, I'll show you another slide that goes into a little more detail, but an outshoot of that was then was looking at um, a study, we developed a study called MARBLES, um, Markers of Autism Risk in Babies Learning Early Signs. So these this is a population of children who were mothers who were studied from the time that they were pregnant or before they were pregnant who already had a child with, with autism. So we knew that they were at greater risk for having another child with autism. Um, so these are all co-collaborators, and we all kind of lived at the Mind Institute and at the Children's Center for Environmental Health. This is just another schematic to sort of show you that... Um, in charge, these kids were two to five years of age. We had three groups. We had kids with autism with the diagnosis reconfirmed, kids with typical development, and kids with developmental delays who did not have autism. We looked at a lot of um, biological factors. We looked retrospectively at a lot of historical factors. We had newborn blood spots to look at, um, blood findings at the time of birth. And then this is marble. So you can see this is a prospective study, as I said, of children of pregnancies and then the children out to age three, where we looked at a lot of the same biological samples. We did a lot of the same environmental questionnaires, except that it was prospective. All right, so that sort of sets the stage. One of the things that we um, have found and reported on, and I, I think I presented um, at a previous study, but we've got some um, updates, is the importance of folic acid in reducing the risk of autism. So this was in charge. This was retrospective data asking the mothers, did they remember? Did they take prenatal vitamins during this pregnancy? When did they start? And what we found was that um, there was about a 40% reduction in the risk of having a child with autism if mothers took prenatal vitamins, which have extra folate, in preconception or at least in the first month or trimester. This has been replicated several times. Um, we didn't have any studies that looked at were there actual differences in the maternal blood folate at the time of birth or in the first trimester. Um, and then the other thing that was interesting about this that allowed us to look at this impact was primarily on women who had a genetic variant that made them inefficient folate metabolizer. So in order to have sort of what we think of as sort of normal folate, they needed to have extra folate on board because they were sort of slow metabolizers. So it was this first gene, clear gene environment interaction um, that, that we found in, in one of our studies in charge. This just shows you that in this next study, we were able to actually measure the difference in maternal folate 
between mothers who had uh, children with autism in red and then mothers who had a child with typical development out here. So this was um, at the time of the first month of pregnancy. So now this study is from marbles. So this is one of the first studies out of um, the prospective study, looking at children who were followed out to age three who ended up with a diagnosis of autism, non-typical development, or typical development. So um, a lot of children who are at risk probably from shared gene environment uh, interactions for autism may not end up with a diagnosis of autism, but have some delays in terms of their language development, have some behavioral concerns around attention, emotion regulation, and sometimes we call that the broader autism phenotype. It's not quite autism, but it's getting kind of close. So that's what we've called in this study non, non-typical development. Um, and you can see that um, the mothers who used prenatal vitamins in the first month were about half as um, likely to have a child um, on the autism spectrum. So there's a big, big difference here. No significant differences. It's a, you know, maybe a little bit different in terms of non-typical development, but clearly having extra folate on board in the early, early part of pregnancy was really important. And this is a group of mothers, oops, sorry, this this is a group of mothers that we know are at risk and a group of fetuses that are at risk because they already have an older sibling with autism. Um, in this study, about by the time of mid-pregnancy, about half of the moms were taking prenatal vitamins. In preconception and in the first month, only about a third of the mothers were taking prenatal vitamins. By the end, almost everybody was taking prenatal vitamins. So it looks like this is a critical window when extrafolate is really important. Okay, so I'm going to stay with the maternal environment, but I'm going to shift to another group of studies that we've done looking at metabolic conditions. These are all clearly disorders that impact an increasing number of women in the United States. You can see how common diabetes, uh, other related metabolic conditions like obesity, chronic hypertension, metabolic syndrome. And what I'm adding here is the preeclampsia. And what all of these metabolic conditions have in common are that they have underlying chronic inflammation, which then causes insulin resistance. And just in the course of normal pregnancy, insulin resistance increases anyway, just because of the sort of the metabolic changes that go along with pregnancy. Um, this is kind of a flowchart looking at our schematic in terms of why we thought this was important to look at in terms of some of the potential impact on fetal brain. So we know that maternal metabolic conditions put moms in a pro-inflammatory state, so they have elevated levels of pro-inflammatory cytokines. These cross the placenta. They stimulate fetal immune cells in the brain, which are really important for early brain development. Um, So you have sort of a pro-inflammatory state in terms of fetal brain. Then the other mechanism in terms of insulin resistance is when you're resistant to insulin, maternal glucose levels go up. This stimulates fetal insulin to go up. 
stimulates increased fetal growth, more oxygen consumption, and the potential for fetal hypoxia, um, as well as iron deficiency. And this is particularly important if we think about um, preeclampsia and placental insufficiency. So the questions that we are asking is, can we show that these metabolic conditions during pregnancy increase the likelihood of having a child with ASD or other delays? So you can see in terms of the initial study that we looked at um, that both children with ASD and developmental delay but not autism had a higher likelihood of having mothers with any or a combination of these different syndromes. And you can see how significant, actually, these risk factors are, both for delayed development, um, but autism specifically as well. So when we looked at preeclampsia, we found that the same thing was true, that in women who had preeclampsia, they were um, twice as likely to have a child on the autism spectrum. When we looked um, at children who ended up with a diagnosis of developmental delay, but not autism, it wasn't really until there was very severe preeclampsia and placental insufficiency where we saw this spike in terms of impacting um, fetal outcomes. So again, we've added preeclampsia to one of these risk factors that we think is very important in increasing or at least mitigating risk for um, autism. So now I'm going to shift gears and talk about the other side of the immune system, so the cellular immune system. Um, And what we found, one of the observations that we have found initially in the CHARGE study early on was that some women develop antibodies that have a target on fetal brain. And unfortunately, these are IgG proteins, which means they can cross the placenta. And their targets happen to be... um, circuit fetal um, brain cells, and their impact seems to reduce the development of dendritic spines. And as we've looked at children whose mother have these antibodies, and again, this started out in the charge study, about a quarter of the moms who had children with autism had these patterns of antibodies with fetal brain targets, And we didn't see them in the mothers of children with developmental delay, and we didn't see them in in mothers of children with typical development. And as we continued to look, we actually realized that there's particular, some characteristics of these children. Not only do they have autism, but they seem to have sort of distinct uh, subphenotype, where they have more severe behaviors. They tend to have more severe, uh, higher autism severity, um, lots of stereotypical behavior, And in boys, at least, they tend to have larger brains, so uh, macrocephaly. And the story of um, how we developed um, or took this information, I think, is a really interesting story in in terms of translation and the importance of having both uh, clinicians and basic scientists on your team to really develop the story and understand what it is you're observing clinically what those mechanisms might be, and then how can you use that information to get back to um, clinical targets. So I'm just going to walk you through, as I said, we just on Western blots early on, we saw that these different patterns existed in some of the mothers who had children with autism. We weren't really sure what their clinical significance was, but we thought they probably were significant because they weren't in other moms. Um, And it was really hard. This was 
when studies were first starting to really think about or look at the immune system, and it's all over the place, continues to this day, you know, it's hard to replicate some of these studies. Um, But one of the things that I think really helped us along this path is we took um, antibodies from moms who had kids with autism and had these uh, antibody patterns, and in four different animal models, used these antibodies, these maternal antibodies, and injected them into early uh, two early mouse models and two um, primate models. And these, uh, this intervention resulted in um, demonstrating that both mice and monkeys develop symptoms that are similar to at least some of the behavioral symptoms that we see in children. They had social abnormalities. They had lots and lots of repetitive behaviors um, and a lot of self-harm. So we had sort of some proof of proof of concept here. And then some of the other things that we started figuring out is that many of these women who had these antibodies also had a genetic variant in the CMET gene that seemed to be associated with producing these autoantibodies. We also found, again, by observation, clinical observation, that a lot of um, the boys whose mother has these antibodies and who had autism had larger brains. And then we also found that mothers who had these autoantibodies were more likely to have metabolic conditions during pregnancy. So again, sort of tying um, both of these lines of research together. So the next step was really trying to figure out if we could target what are these antigens and where are their, where are their specific targets. And this really took a lot longer than we thought it was going to take. Um, but we finally identified the proteins, and they were quite common proteins, LDH, CRIMP1, and STIP1, which are very important in terms of early neurodevelopment. Um, and so Jackie Crawley and her team developed a mouse model and injected these specific proteins, not from maternal serum, but, but developed these proteins and, and developed this mouse model of autism. So again, another proof of concept. The step, that, the step clinically, then, is to try and figure out how can we screen for these antibodies, identify them in a, a clinical way that's valid, that's efficient, um, that you could do a lot of screening. And this has been complicated because a lot of the recombinant proteins that are used in the ELISA assay um, have his tags on them. And it turns out that um, a lot of vaccines also have this tag. So you get a lot of nonspecific binding in women who don't have these antibodies but have his tags. So it's taken a very long time to get this assay completed. Lots of stops and starts. But I think we're getting very close to having a clinically available um, screen for these autoantibody patterns. Okay, so this is my last shift, and I hope I have enough time to do this. I do. Sorry for running through this so fast. But now I want to just look at some immune dysregulation in the children themselves. So all of this has been related to what we've understood in the maternal environment and with maternal dysregulation. So this is actually from another study at the Mind Institute called the Autism Phenome Project. Um, These children were between the ages of two and three. They had a diagnosis of autism that was confirmed. And we had a comparison group of typically developing boys as well, the same age. 
And what we found is that there were differences across these groups in their patterns of um, immune uh, response to stimulation. And particularly when we looked at within the group of boys that had a diagnosis of autism and stimulated their mononuclear cells with um, lipopolysaccharide, which usually just causes a... uh, upregulation or a pro-inflammatory response. We found that some kids in this group were high responders in this, these dark bars, and kids that didn't quite respond, they, just, they didn't get such a great response as this group did. So we call them high and low responders. And then we looked at autism severity. So this is from the ADOS, the Autism Diagnostic Observation Schedule. And you can see that the boys with the high response had much more impairments in their social affective relate, relating. No real significant differences in terms of repetitive behaviors. And not clinically, statistically significantly different, but some increase in their overall autism severity. And when we looked at... Um, oh, they also actually had... Uh, lower overall developmental quotients, and particularly in the nonverbal developmental quotient. No significant differences in terms of their verbal skills. Then we looked at correlated behaviors, sort of comorbidities, and again found significant increases in the high responders in terms of sleep problems um, and aggressive behaviors. Some suggestion that there's some increased attention problems, but again, not statistically significant. So what this may help us develop is trying to um, be able to segregate not just by diagnosis but by subtype, particularly as we're trying to do more targeted clinical trials. It may be that when you look at a group of boys who we all know have autism, we all can agree upon that, and some seem to respond to a particular targeted treatment and others don't, and so it all kind of washes out in the middle so you don't find statistical significance or clinical differences. It may be because these kids have different etiologies and need different targeted treatments. So this is just one way of thinking about how we might subdivide groups when we look at clinical trials. So just in summary, I think immune studies and autism really do reflect the complex heterogeneity, both in etiology as well as trying to sort things out in terms of gene-environment interactions that are very complicated. And our line of research would suggest that it's both maternal and child immune systems that may be very important in subtyping children as we try and develop more targeted treatments. Um, They may also be early biomarkers that help us look for risk, and um, hopefully we can get towards prevention. So I think um, making sure that women of childbearing age understand the importance of taking prenatal vitamins when they're planning a pregnancy, before they get pregnant, um, is a public health message that is important. And I think trying to address some of the health factors that contribute to metabolic conditions as best we can um, is also an important aspect of autism treatment or perhaps prevention. So um, thank you to all the families that have participated in these studies, to our funders, and to my co-collaborators. So thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.